I'll ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 49. We're going to read specifically verses 8 through 12 of Genesis 49. We'll not explain them immediately, but we will before we're done here. Genesis 49 verses 8 through 12. I will also warn you, there will be some things on the screens today. Those are meant to aid you, not distract you. So uh, as they come up, hopefully they are just that, an aid and not a distraction. So be prepared. Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12. Uh, yeah, it's almost enough time. That's enough time. Okay, let's read together. Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12. Judah, you are he whom your brother shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. And that's probably very confusing to you. If we just read that text and it is unfamiliar, then that's a good thing because that's why we are doing this series of sermons. And in case you've not been with us the last couple of weeks, this is part of uh, the sermon where I'll be doing a little bit of a review, uh, trying to outline what we're hoping to accomplish. If you are a Christian, you have probably heard someone say at some point or another that the Bible is all about Jesus. And yet, if you have become familiar with all of the various Bible stories over the years, you might be wondering, how exactly is David and Goliath, or Noah's Ark, or Daniel and the lion's den about Jesus? And the truth is, if we look at the, at the biblical stories in isolation of one another, we would have to answer that the stories don't appear to have much of a direct connection to Jesus. But by the same token, if we honestly approach God's Word, someone will stand up and interject that in this conversation, these stories are not meant to be read in isolation of one another. For time's sake, for attention's sake, we cover them sometimes individually and out of the context of the greater narrative, and yet the Bible is not merely a collection of diverse cultural, and religious stories. The Bible is one story from Genesis to Revelation. It is the story about Jesus. More specifically, it's a story of God's redemption through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And yet the Bible is quite large as far as books go. It has many books and many chapters and the pages uh, within. So I've got a slide here to show you. Hopefully Joshua is Johnny on the spot with this. Is it coming? Maybe. Ah, there we go. This is too small for you to see, but uh, this will also go up on our church website if you want to glance at it there. This particular slide is not meant for you to see every number or every book, but these are all the books of the Bible. 
you can get a sense of how large the Bible is. And all the small numbers inside these rectangles represent the number of chapters in each book. I've highlighted on this little graphic Genesis, which is at the beginning, and Daniel, which is the book that we're going to. And I've told you that there are 850 chapters in between Genesis and Daniel that we are summarizing now in the weeks ahead. In total, the Bible contains 1,189 chapters across 66 books. But the most unique thing, perhaps the most impressive thing about the Bible, is that these books are written over the course of a couple of thousand years. Think about that for a second. Now, let me suggest to you that if we're right, if these books are in fact telling one cohesive story, that in and of itself should be amazing evidence of the work of God because there is nothing else like that that we've discovered in the course of human history that spans centuries of writing contributions by many different human authors and yet manages to tell a unified story so complete that even though the authors at the beginning of the book live thousands of years before the ones at the end when the end comes to pass, the story is still beautifully cohesive and coherent. And I believe that we'll see some of that today even in our short time together this morning. Now on this next slide... Uh, you will see uh, this one should be a little easier to read. The stories that outline how the Bible begin. There are five preliminary stories, and then we're introduced to the main characters, which we will then follow. You see on the timeline here the stories of creation, the fall, Cain and Abel, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. And we start to see after that names appearing. These names become the main characters throughout the early chapters of the Bible. And on this next slide, this is the same timeline and the same stories, but I've added a little blue box around the first stories, and I've written the title, The World, How It Came to Be As It Is Today. Creation tells us how the world was made. The fall tells us how death and evil came to be. Cain and Abel tells us not merely the pervasiveness of sin, but the pervasiveness of sin even in the presence of a God who still desires some fellowship with us. The flood tells us how the world became ecologically, environmentally, globally recognizable to the one that we see today. And the Tower of Babel tells us how people became diverse and dispersed, as well as the part that idolatry played in that dispersion. Now you will notice I have colored the circle representing the fall with the shade of green, and I've added the note, the promised man. We have spent significant time in the past two weeks reviewing the promise of a man in Genesis chapter 3. In the opening chapters of the Bible, the opening pages, we are promised a man who will defeat Satan and who will redeem creation. This promised man is introduced in the opening pages of the story, and it is my contention, in fact, the Christian contention, that the entire Bible is about him. We will gradually become to identifying him as the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus, as we turn through the pages of the Bible. To the right, you can see that I have shaded the storyline with a box of green, if you can make that out, and I have labeled the section, The Family of the Promised Man. The Family of the Promised Man. When we read the book of Genesis, we begin with the first five stories that set the stage for the world as we know it, but after those stories, we are immediately introduced to a man. This man is Abram, and he'll later be renamed Abraham. The question that often puzzles Christians who are new to the scriptures is, why? 
Why, of all the ancient peoples in the world, why, of all the ancient men in the world, are we learning about this one guy, Abram? Why is the Bible telling us the story of Abraham? And the answer is because the story is not actually about Abraham. It's about Jesus and the promised man and his family. He had a lineage. He has a family tree. And God is working in that family, in that lineage to defeat Satan. And at every point of the process, as God identifies the person to whom this promised man will eventually be born, Satan is actively working to destroy that family. God is preserving and sustaining while Satan is attacking and destroying. Satan does not want this promised man of Genesis. Genesis 3 to be born. The Bible is showing us the sovereignty of God in the story of the promised man. On this next slide, we will see all of this laid out in the text itself. I'll give you the references if you can't read them from where you're sitting. In Genesis 3.15, the man is promised. God tells us, uh, God tells Satan, uh, the woman will have offspring. He calls the offspring her seed. By the way, there is a hint of the virgin birth in that phraseology. If you were an ancient writer and you were describing one day a boy who would be born, a man who would be born to a couple, you would describe that offspring as his seed or the seed of the man, not the seed of the woman. And yet here, there is a hint of the reality that Jesus has a biological mother, but no earthly biological father. He is born of the Holy Spirit. The promised man in Genesis 3, we're told, will crush the head of the serpent, Satan, Yes, the word translated bruise means crush or break. He will crush the head of Satan even as Satan strikes his heel. In the cross of Jesus, this takes place. We see Satan's attempt to crush the promised man, but in the resurrection of Jesus, we find that the cross was no more than a minor injury to our Lord. He has conquered the grave and accomplished redemption. And here's the thing. We will see this in the text today. By way of his redemption, by way of his work at the cross, he is given the right to rule and to reign. He earns the right to break the seals of God's judgment against Satan, which flashes all the way forward to the book of Revelation. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. In Genesis 3, the man is promised. In Genesis 12, God is speaking to Abram, and he tells Abraham that in his lineage, in his family offspring, quote, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, which we've said is an incredible thing to say, that any one person can bless all the families of the earth. And it's not immediately clear in Genesis 12 that this blessing is in fact the promised man who is to come. Maybe all the families of the earth will be blessed by Abram's offspring in some other way. And yet as the chapters roll on, finally arriving in Genesis 49 with the text we read this morning, it becomes increasingly clear that the blessing spoken of in Genesis 12, the blessing that will bless all the families of the earth, is in fact the arrival of this promised man from Genesis chapter 3. We are on a journey through the Bible to discover that. Then in Genesis 17, which is the third passage on this slide, we get a sense of how serious God is about the covenant that he made with Abram. Now, last week we read from Genesis 15. 
In Genesis 15, God announces this covenant and he walks a bloody path to seal his covenant with Abraham in blood. We observe that this covenant, this contract, this treaty, this promise that God enters into with Abram is one-sided. God will do what he has promised to Abram and he is willing to walk a path of blood to say, on my essence of who I am, on life and death, I will do this thing. Um, This was an ancient custom whereby two people would create a path of blood through the carcasses of animals that had been slain and they would walk a bloody path together and by doing this they would enter into a contract. A contract that says if it will let it be to you or I if either of us breaks this covenant. You would do this with a serious thing. So it's a covenant sealed in blood and that's what God does in Genesis 15. Not God and Abram, just God walks this path of blood. And by the way, as the Lord's table sits before us this morning and we prepare to do what we're doing, we should acknowledge God walks the path of blood again to seal a new covenant for us in the New Testament. We have a covenant with God too, just as Abram had a covenant with God. And just like Abram, our covenant with God is one-sided. God has done all of the work and he has sealed this covenant in his own blood. In Matthew 26, verse 28, Jesus tells his disciples at the Last Supper, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the remission of sins. So we'll observe the Lord's Supper together shortly, and when you drink from that cup, you remember we are doing this to remember that God has symbolized in this this uh, 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 um, sacrament that we observe, the blood of his only begotten son, which he has shed to seal this covenant, this covenant by which you and I become children of God, by which we're reconciled. Now, in Genesis 17, that's the third passage on the slide, this tells us something else about the promise that God is making with Abram. God is not merely making a promise to Abram, but it's a promise to all of Abram's descendants, to his family. He is going to carry this on generationally from Abram. It says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations. He calls it, and I've highlighted on this slide, an everlasting covenant three times. No, finally in verse 19, Sarah, your wife, will bear a son. You will call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. So this is not merely a covenant that God is making with Abram, but God is identifying a family of people, generation after generation, whom he has chosen. This is all in order to fulfill the promises in Genesis chapter 3 of the arrival of Jesus Christ, the promised man who will come. This next slide is meant to show you how the book of Genesis is ordered. Genesis is a very important book of the Bible that sets the stage for what is to come. You might struggle to read this. I'd encourage you to get a copy from our church website later this week if you'd like to review it. As the book progresses, as Genesis progresses, we move through a series of stories, but also a series of people whom those stories are about. This is happening at the same time. These are not random people. These are not random stories about ancient people. These are the people from whom Jesus, the promised man, will come. We know that Abraham does eventually have a son with Sarah, his wife. The son is named Isaac, as God instructed to name him in the passage we just read, Genesis 17. 
And then God uses the story in Genesis chapter 22 to give us an unbelievable glance into the future. It's why I call back to this story so frequently in our preaching time together, the story of Genesis chapter 22. It's an unbelievable glimpse, glimpse into the future of what God is going to do in Christ. Remember, we as readers are reading the book of Genesis and we are waiting for the promised man. But Abram is just a man who is waiting for a promised man of his own. He is waiting for a promised son and he is aging and he's not seeing it and God is telling him he's going to come. You are going to have a son. I promised you this man. He's going to come. And then he finally has this promised son, Isaac. And yet when Isaac is born, what does God tell him but to go and offer him this promised man as a sacrifice on a mountain in the land of Moriah to go kill him as if he were an animal. The land of Moriah, coincidentally, will later be the land of Jerusalem where Jesus himself is offered as a sacrifice on a mountain. Um, and Abraham obeys. He is willing to offer his only son, Isaac, this son of promise whom he has waited for as a sacrifice to God, believing the Bible tells us that God is able, if he so wishes, to raise Isaac from the dead and fulfill his promise. And Abraham's faith wins the day. It's his faith that God commends in Genesis chapter 22. Just as Isaac, the only son of promise to Abraham, is about to be slain, the angel of the Lord speaks to Abraham, and Abraham looks towards the voice, and he sees a lamb, a ram, an adult lamb, caught in the thorns by his head. And it's this lamb that will substitute and stand in the place for Isaac as an animal sacrifice. God's saying, now I know, because you have not withheld your only son from me, whom you love. And what is Jesus but the promised Son of God, long-awaited, crowned with thorns on Golgotha in the land of Moriah, being offered as a sacrifice, the only Son of God, as a substitute for you and I. And like Abraham, we are called to believe that God can and has raised him from the dead, and it's by this faith we are saved, even as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Isaac, the son of Abraham, grows up. He has children, twin boys, Jacob and Esau. We're told the story of Esau's descendants um, uh, in the, the history of the Edomites. They are not the people of promise because of Esau's carelessness towards God and the things of the Lord. And so his brother Jacob becomes the inheritor of God's promise. God appears to Jacob. He gives him the name Israel after wrestling with him in a dream. Israel means to wrestle with God, foreshadowing in a way the relationship that Israel as a nation will have with this God, wrestling in fellowship with this almighty God. And now in Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who is renamed Israel, God establishes the everlasting covenant in another generation, the same covenant he made with Abraham in Genesis 17. Jacob, who is Israel, has 12 sons. These become the 12 tribes of Israel. Although a lot more could be said about how they become the 12 tribes of Israel, it's a story that we won't take time for today. One of these sons is Joseph. 
And you've probably heard something of the prince of Egypt from Moses and how they got there and this Joseph and the, the coat of many colors. You've probably heard something of this story. Well, Joseph is enslaved by his own brothers who sell him into captivity to traders because of their jealousy. Joseph is taken to Egypt and he rises through a series of sufferings to become the head of Egypt prophetically in the purpose of God. Uh, this is because there is a time of famine coming throughout the world. Um, because of Joseph's labor, Egypt is uniquely positioned to gain great wealth during this time of famine. They have plenty of food, whereas all the other peoples in the region who have not prepared for this famine are beginning to starve. They are beginning, because of starvation, to exchange all of their cattle and all of their herds, all of their money and possession for grain, because without grain, they can't continue. Uh, they can't continue with animals unless they can feed the animals with grain, and it's not growing in the field any longer. The amazing thing in this story is how God uses Joseph not only to rescue Egypt, but to rescue Israel. The important thing biblically for us to cover is that God brings Joseph's brothers, the Israelites, back into fellowship with him in Egypt. They come seeking grain in Egypt with no idea that Joseph is alive or has risen to prominence there. And through a series of exchanges, uh, very interesting, very wonderful, uh, very uh, uh, beautiful, narrative, Joseph is brought back into fellowship with his long-lost brothers. He's brought back into fellowship with his father. Israel, Jacob, and all of his descendants migrate from the land that they're living in to the safety of Egypt, and they become very wealthy there along with the Egyptians. They're not treated as servants. They're given the land of Goshen to thrive in, and so Israel and Egypt prosper even as the rest of the world struggles. Um, as we close the book of Genesis... This is how Jacob, who is Israel, blesses his son Judah. Now, he blesses all of his sons at the end of the book. Remember, Jacob has had this wrestling with God experience. He's, been, he's inherited God's promises. He's had all these sons. His sons become the promise of God's people. He thinks he's lost his son Joseph, only to be reunited with him in the saving work of God. He is now safely in the land of Egypt and about to die as an old man surrounded by his family. His sons are not young men. They themselves are old men at this point in time, and he blesses each of his sons. But for us specifically, the blessing to Judah is particularly relevant. And in Genesis chapter 49, verse 8, we read the passage we read together at the start of the service. He says, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Now, if you know anything from the book of Genesis about Judah, you know he is not a particularly praiseworthy individual. Like, this is not a promise that he has earned by way of his own greatness or righteousness or good deeds. He has a very difficult past if you read through the book of Genesis. So something beyond this is just his favorite kid is happening here as Jacob blesses Judah. He says, your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is not the oldest, the second oldest, or the third oldest. He's the fourth son. Something prophetically is happening in this blessing. You will be the king. Your brothers will bow down before you. That, by the way, doesn't happen during Judah's lifetime. He's speaking forward into Judah's lineage, Judah's 
of future. Verse 9 says, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now, next slide, Josh. On this next slide, I've highlighted a few things. And again, maybe very difficult for you to see, but that's all right. They're there and they'll be online as a reference for you. The first text is from Genesis 17, which again is where God reiterates this everlasting covenant to Abraham. God tells Abraham in Genesis 17, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. This is reiterated in verse 16 of the same chapter. Kings and peoples shall be from her. So it's very clear that royalty will play a major part in the blessing that will bless all peoples in Abraham's future. Now, look at the, at the wording in Jacob's blessing, in Israel's blessings to Judah. He tells Judah, your father's children shall bow down before you. In other words, God is making us into a great people, and from you, Judah, will come the kings of these people. Judah is a lion's whelp. That's a symbol of aggression and power and royalty. Not just in Israel, but in all the ancient world, the lions were symbols of royalty. Twice more in this passage, Judah is a lion. Then Jacob tells Judah, the scepter which signifies royalty. Kings are the ones who carry scepters. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver. Again, kings give the laws from between his feet. And then we get this strange phrase, a really an untranslated phrase, until Shiloh comes. The word Shiloh is a Hebrew word. It's not an English word. It's being transliterated here. It's a Hebrew word, and it means to whom it belongs. So what Jacob is saying is that there is a person coming to whom the scepter of Judah, the scepter of the kings, belongs. And we know who that person is, don't we? This is Jesus. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the King of kings. This is the Lord of lords. This is the one who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. This is the one who will carry the scepter for all eternity. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, look at what Jacob says, and to him, Jesus, Shiloh, the one to whom the scepter belongs, to him shall be the obedience of the people. The word people is the plural word for all peoples. It's not just people as in our people, but all peoples. In fact, the NIV translates it nations to try to make that more explicit. The ESV, the NASB, the RSV in English use peoples to signify not just one people group, but all peoples. It's people in the sense of nations, plural. My point is it's very clear in the text that Jacob is promising the appearance of a singular man to whom the ruling scepter belongs. And to this, man, to this man from Abram's lineage will be given the obedience of all people. This is the conclusion of Genesis, but it is the pronouncement of the fulfillment of how Genesis began. 
the seed of the woman that is promised in Genesis chapter 3. And folks, this is 1,500, 2,000 years before Jesus. This is long before Jesus. This book is all about him. What Jacob is doing in this blessing to Judah is he is making it clear that when God promised Abraham, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed in his offspring. Jacob is making it clear that through the line of Judah, the promised man of Genesis 3 would come. He specifically would be that blessing. Listen, Abraham is not a blessing to all people because the prophets were Israelites. He's not a blessing to all people because that's where the temple of God was. Abraham is not a blessing to all people because that's where the scriptures were written by the ancient authors, the ancient people breathed into by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, Jacob, Abraham, his offspring, Israel, they're a blessing to all people because the man from Genesis chapter 3 will come from them. He will be the fulfillment of the redemption of all that God has promised fallen humanity. And he will rule and reign, and there will be peace and prosperity and joy for all peoples. You can go to the next slide, uh, Josh. King David, uh, did you already skip too far ahead? Uh, uh oh. Well, I'll just give it to you anyway. King David, who is one of those who's from the tribe of Judah to hold the scepter that ultimately belongs to Jesus, becomes during his reign symbolic of Christ's reign himself. David does. David is from the tribe of Judah, from the family of Judah. He's the second king of Israel, but the first king from Judah. And so he becomes fulfillment of the Davidic king, Jesus, who would come. And in Psalms, in much of the Psalms, God is speaking to David directly about things, talking to David, but clearly talking beyond David towards the future king of Judah who will reign from David's lineage. I'll give you an example of this, and you can jot this down since the slide isn't up. Psalm 2, 8 in Psalm 2, it is all about Jesus, but David is recording the, the, the speech of God, and this is what God says. Listen to this. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Now, that's not a promise that was ever fulfilled in the person of David. He had a very defined reign. He had a very defined border. This is not a promise fulfilled to David, but to Shiloh, to the one to whom the scepter of David, the scepter of Judah belongs. This is a promise to Jesus. Then we see from Daniel chapter 7, you can write this down, we're moving towards Daniel, this will come up again. But Daniel, who lives during the Babylonian captivity, after David, there is no king of Israel while Daniel's alive and writing this. But Daniel says in Daniel chapter 7, just two verses, verses 13 and 14, I was watching in the night visions. And by the way, you can be forgiven for thinking that we've somehow jumped way ahead to the book of Revelation at the end of the New Testament because he says, I was watching in the night visions and one like the Son of Man. This is hundreds of years before Christ. One like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. I mean, if you heard the call to worship in 1 Thessalonians 4 this morning, this is New Testament stuff, but it's from Daniel in the Old Testament. And in my vision, he says, there was one like the Son of Man, a man, a human being, and yet he was coming as if he were God. He was coming in the clouds of heaven. And this man comes to the Ancient of Days. This is Daniel 7.13. 
And they brought him near before him. And you can imagine the confusion of Daniel. Daniel, who lived during a time when priests, human priests, had to be intercessors for beings to be able to approach the Almighty God. And yet in his vision, a man approaches God himself. And if you think that's alarming, look at what God does with this man in this vision. It says, and they brought him near before him. Then to a man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion, and tell me if you hear a hint of Genesis 17 in this, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Just as God's everlasting covenant with Abraham is being fulfilled, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. This is again the Old Testament prophet Daniel who lived after the destruction of Israel, but he prophesies of the king who is to come from the tribe of Judah, the promised man of Genesis 3. The Bible is all about this man. Then from Revelation, I'll just read to you two verses from Revelation chapter 5. This is the end of the book. And it says, One of the elders said to me, this is John speaking, Do not weep, but behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is Genesis 49 stuff. The root of David. This is Psalm 2 stuff. Has prevailed. How did he prevail? has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And so they sang a new song saying, worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Verse 9 of Revelation 5, for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You see Genesis 49 there. You see Psalm 2 there. You see Genesis 3 there. This lamb, this promised man who was slain and by way of his suffering, he earns the right to break the seals of God's judgment against the serpent promised in Genesis 3. These seals that are being broken in the book of Revelation are seals of the judgment of God on Satan. This is the finality of Genesis 3 introduced to us in the very beginning. And that man is Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is slain like a lamb. Genesis 22, take now Isaac, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice to me in the land of Moriah at a specific place that I will show you. This is Jesus. Now, I have another slide, but Josh doesn't have it, unfortunately. From the prophet Ezekiel, and this is in Ezekiel. He is telling the nation of Israel. This is before Daniel, and they're getting ready to go into captivity. So Ezekiel's writing, but they still have a king. There's still a king from Judah sitting on the throne. And he's telling them, the kings are about to stop. The kings are about to be done with. God is getting ready to destroy Jerusalem and to break Israel because of your idolatry, because you've chosen to worship all these idols instead of be faithful to me. You've broken your promise that you've made to serve me. And it's all going to come to a conclusion. You can imagine how alarming that must have been to the people of Israel because they're promised in Genesis 49, the scepter will not depart from Judah. 
there'll be a king from Judah. And they've seen that now in the fulfillment of David and his lineage and his offspring. And now Ezekiel shows up in, it, in chapter 21 and he's saying, God's going to take it all away. And this is what he says. This is verse 25 through 27 of Ezekiel 21. Now to you, O profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day has come, whose iniquity, whose sin shall end. Thus says the Lord God. Now listen to what he says. Remove the turban and take off the crown. Nothing shall remain the same. And that, that was true. That was true. Israel is still awaiting the return of the lion of the tribe of Judah to rule and to reign. Nothing will be the same anymore. Exalt the humble and humble the exalted. And listen to verse 27 from Ezekiel. Overthrown, overthrown, I will make it overthrown. It shall be no longer until he comes whose right it is, and I will give it to him. Take off the crown. Take off the crown. Put down the scepter. It shall be no longer until he comes whose right it is, and I will give it to him. This is amazing. And we know whom the one is who will come. And we know whose right it is. And here God is saying, I will give it to him. This is Jesus who has earned the right to wear the crown because he took the cross. He has earned the right to wear the crown because he took the cross. Philippians 2, and I know we finished in Philippians not long ago. Verses 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, of a slave. And coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. We know that. And verse 9 says, Therefore, because he went to the cross, because he suffered the cross, God has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. And, and get a sense of the royalty in this, in verse 10. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those in heaven, and of those on earth, and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is King to the glory of God the Father. Jesus earned the right to wear the crown because he took the cross. And this story is all about him. There is no portion of the Bible, no narrative in the Bible, that is haphazardly included. This is telling you the story of how God has redeemed you from the work of the one man, Adam, by the work of the one man, Christ. And this is what we're going to do to remember his covenant this morning, let's close with a word of prayer as Steve comes forward to lead us.
Father, we are um, vapors in the wind. Our life is, is, but, is but a flower that quickly fades. And the fact that you have loved us enough to give us your word so that these vapors in the wind can get a sense of the totality of what you have been about from the beginning of the world even till now. That we might not only see our place in this, but that we may be invited in participation to take part of what you're doing and who you are. It would be enough to simply hang on a hook in heaven. And yet you have made us more than that. Joint heirs with your conquering son, Jesus. You have given us the rights of children. And all of this, because this man to whom the scepter belongs went to the cross and suffered. You poured out your justice on him so that we might know your mercy. Therefore, you have highly exalted him. And in our remembrance of it this morning, we ask that you exalt him in our hearts and in our lives now. Let this man, Jesus, be our king. Let us serve him wholeheartedly. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.